Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Cognitive Dissidents. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm the Director of Geopolitical Analysis at Cognitive Investments. Joining us on the podcast for our semi-monthly podcast episode is cousin Marco Papich, who is not my cousin, uh, but who we love very much and who is a partner and director of strategy at Clock Tower Group. Uh, we ran through a lot of different things, everything from Europe to U.S. recession odds to some basketball chat at the end. Um, listeners, if you're coming to this podcast from The Perch Pod, a reminder, at the end of August, you will have to go to Cognitive Dissidents in order to get full future episodes. So be sure to sign up there. If you have already signed up and have not yet rated the podcast, consider doing that for us. Otherwise, you can always write to me at jacob at cognitive.investments with questions, comments, concerns, books to read, anything else that's on your mind. Uh, and with that, I'll be quiet and let's get to the episode. Cheers. See you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status or investment horizon, you should consult your attorney or tax advisor. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur. Uh, cousin Marco, we have so much to discuss. I want everyone to know that in the email setting up this podcast, you said Kyrie was going to be a Laker by this time and you were wrong. Kyrie is, is not a Laker. So hello. How's it going? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's going great. Uh, yeah, I, I, by now I think people who listen to this know that, uh, we're quite often wrong. Yes, but they keep, they keep coming back for more Marco. I'm, hey, I'm we're not a- shy of being wrong. No, no, we're honest about being wrong. I've had a day. I, I feel like I'm living the American dream. I, I woke up, I wrote a piece about LNG. I did a podcast with somebody else. I mowed my lawn. Now I'm drinking sparkling water out of an absurdly large bottle. And now I'm talking to you. Like life life feels pretty good to me right now. That's awesome. I am also uh, drinking sparkling uh, water, which I don't know if that's the American dream. I think we lost... <laughs> I lost our credibility on the American dream the moment we are drinking sparkling water. Uh, but yes, no, um, everything is going well. I'm here in Santa Monica, which is very rare these days. I've been on the road quite a bit, which is cool. You know, seeing different perspectives, talking to people about what they're worried about. Um, but yeah, weather's great. And, uh, you know, looking forward to the summer. Yeah, that's not a thing we say in New Orleans right now. But um, not looking forward <laughs> to the summer because it's really hot. Um, but... All right, let's get to it because we have so much stuff to talk about. Um, I I thought we'd start and we'll link to your all along the clock tower piece in the uh, notes and description to to the podcast. Um, But uh, your most recent one for June 2022 has a lot of has a lot of meaty stuff in it and even some stuff I might disagree with or at least play devil's advocate with. But I wanted to start with... um, it's pretty, uh, you pick a, a, a pretty harsh stance against Paul Volcker as a false deity. And you're basically calling the Fed's bluff and saying there's no way they're going to raise interest rates as quickly as they are and that maybe we've hit bottom. 
Today, it feels like everybody and their mom is talking about a 100 basis point rise and the inflation print last month scared the shit out of everyone. Um, so how are you feeling about that in particular? How are you feeling about inflation? How are you feeling about recession in the U.S.? Why don't we just start there? I mean, if you look at the bond futures, like euro dollar futures and stuff, like, you know, I'm in the consensus, I would say. The expectation is that they're going to start, like, cutting rates next year. So that's uh, so that's the first thing. I mean, yeah, like maybe uh, me calling peak hawkishness in June, I'm off by 25 basis points because they like <laughs> 100 instead of 75. Um, but, you know, like I think that um, generally speaking, I think we are still in this world where uh, policymakers, whether they're elected or unelected, are just not they don't have the guts to do what's required to uh, deal with inflation. But I would also say the point of that piece is that what we think, what many investors think is required is wrong. And that's really the purpose of that um, uh, of that analysis, which is that you know, in the financial community, there's this like fairy tale that investors give young younglings who show up uh, as, as analysts, you know, and, and then become investors. And this fairy tale, this is how you put your interns to sleep, you know, in front of the glowing glow of the Bloomberg terminal. And the narrative is like, oh, my God, Paul Walker is this incredible, like, human being who, like, rested and bested, you know, wrestled and bested inflation. And to me, as somebody who does geopolitics, and I think to you too, first of all, it doesn't sit well with sort of the, the framework that we have been taught, which is more structural, like, you know, like the, the great man theory of history is not really palatable to me, first of all, for, like methodologically. But second of all, it's just not true. The only difference between Burns, you know, who's maligned as like incompetent, and Volcker, who is a deity, is I think the macro context that followed each of them. So, you know, Arthur Burns also raised interest rates. He did. He also caused a recession. 73 to 75 was a very deep, very painful recession. Inflation went from 13% to 5%. He did everything that was kind of required. Granted, Volcker went 600 basis points higher. But is that it? Was that was that the extent of his genius? Just like 600 basis points more of hiking? That's kind of like, meh, okay. Um, but the, the difference really is that after inflation went down to 5%, it started going back up in the mid-70s. You know, and that was not really Burns' fault. That was the, the fact that we were still stuck in a populist political cycle. You know, Carter wasn't doing the right things, neither was Ford before him. And then the things were just not moving in the direction of supply. We didn't have supply side reforms domestically, and we didn't have supply side reforms geopolitically. And what I mean by that is like you didn't have expansion of free trade, globalization, and so on. So Volcker shows up, starts raising interest rates, just like Burns says, okay, fine. He went more hardcore. But other than that, what I think a lot of investors forget is the macro context, the geopolitical, the political context that followed, you know, Paul Walker, including the Reagan-Thatcher revolution of supply-side reforms. And, you know, we, we say that so many times, supply-side reforms, supply-side reforms, we forget what it was about. It was about creating more supply through deregulation, making it easier to build, to drill, um, through labor reforms, including globalization, which is the ultimate labor reform, where you could have this labor arbitrage. They were supply-side reforms because they unleashed more supply that's allowing inflation to come down. And I think that's really critical. And so, you know, you look at the Fed today, there's two things I take from this history. One, 
if they go hardcore and they try to get inflation below the mandate, they will almost certainly guarantee higher inflation after recession because they will interrupt the capex cycle that's necessary to bring more supply on the market, more supply of goods, more supply of supply chains, more supply of stuff, more supply of green energy, more supply of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. All that stuff is going to be interrupted. And so we're going to be in a deficit again once demand naturally uh, returns. The second thing that I think is a problem for them is that they don't have the politics as a tailwind the way that Volcker eventually did in the 80s because I don't know what scenario, Jacob, exists where 2024 election in the United States of America brings forth a supply-side reformer. You know, I know some of your listeners are like, oh, Trump is a supply-side reformer, to which I will say, please stop drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> oh, stop listening to us because you're clearly insane. Yeah. He's not. Like, he is as populist as it comes, and he's not going to bring more supply-side. He will protect demand. He will pursue demand-side policies. You know, I mean, he cut taxes at the end of the cycle. You wait, yep. you wait for a recession to do that. Yep. So anyways, the, the whole point of this is that, you know, they're kind of screwed either way. And so I think that it's actually logical for them to pat themselves on the back, declare a victory and say, hey, look, we're asymptotically approaching our target. Let's cool off a little bit. Let's have those real yields remain negative for a couple more years in order to incentivize the kind of investments we need to actually bring forth more supply. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. It's funny. It's funny too because I mean, the the Chinese talk about supply side reforms now too. Which, when anybody tells me China's communist, I I refer them to the the sort of Reagan esque language that China speaks in terms of its economic policy. I think Marx is rolling over in his grave about it. But the other the other thing Volcker did have was he had China sitting there just about to blow up, um, and. I mean, you, as you pointed out, Trump is as populist as they come. The most populist thing he did was he declared a trade war on China. And that's a lot of what's going on here. Do you see any prospect for, I mean, it, it seems to me that you would need some kind of improvement in U.S.-China ties to fix the situation from a supply side. Like that's one pathway, I think, to get to more supply, but probably neither side is going to be interested in that, right? Yeah. So like, why do we need more CapEx? Why do we need to build more stuff, Jacob? You know, and we don't. We really don't. We can just make peace with China. We can be like, hey, you're cool. And then we can also stop worrying about climate change and just take coal and natural gas. <laughs> yeah. But we've made choices that both of those things really matter to us. And, you know, like I, I know a lot of people think e either one of those is silly. So, like, I don't see us going away. Uh, the, the only way to kind of like then do what we've set out to do is to build more stuff. We need to build more green energy infrastructure while at the same time investing in fossil fuels so that, you know, prices of natural gas and oil don't go through the roof. That requires investment and it requires CapEx. And then on China, I mean, the easy thing would be to just reintegrate China and say, hey, we were just kidding. But like, I don't think that's going to happen. So what we're going to do is we're going to build. Now, here's the here's the thing. We're going to overbuild. And it's going to be stupid. And in 2030s, we're going to be using like five nanometer semiconductors as coasters we're going to have you know like prices of goods are going to collapse because we're going to overbuild i think over the next because you know everyone now wants redundancy like spain has a two billion euro plan to build semiconductor fabs in spain france has one too everybody's going to build chips yeah. and it's stupid it's going to create massive oversupply of goods and 
that that we could have done more efficiently through a globalized world as we did in the 90s and early 2000s, but we're going to do that. Now, from here to there, so even though the destination is the disinflation and too much stuff, from here to there, it's going to be inflationary because everyone was building the same fab five times over. You need material for that fab. You know, you need steel. You need, like, components. And so that's inflationary. And so I think that uh, there's no way kind of to avoid this. I think one thing where there could be some respite is energy prices, both short term. And I, I, I write about that a lot. I've been short oil. I've been long bonds, short commodities since May. And uh, I've been short oil. Like I tripled down on that call in June uh, because I think it got kind of out of hand. And I think in the long term, some, you know, we I, I think you will see some more investment and in ca- capital going to fossil fuels because I think everyone understands now that if you care about climate change, if you care about green transition, you also have to be less of a zealot, right? You cannot starve the fossil fuel industry of capital because it increases oil prices, which increases cost of living, and then normal people are going to sour on the green agenda. And so I think I think that ESG will be rolled back when it comes to like you're not allowed to invest in fossil fuels because, because you know it is stupid and it actually is counter to the climate change agenda. And I talk to people who are zealots in this field and they're like, oh my God, no, we need a crisis so that oil is at three hundred dollars and so that we can have like pain and blood in the streets and then people will be like, I need a solar panel. And I'm like, no, what people are going to say is I need a pitchfork to kill you <laughs> and then burn your corpse for energy. <laughs> like, that's what's going to happen. Like, and, you know, like they look at me like I have two heads. And, and this is a big this is a big risk. Places like Europe, they're going to have to deal with this. They've committed to the green agenda. And I think that's the right thing. Lots of innovation is going to come out of that. We're going to solve climate change. But it requires a balanced approach. I'm a little... So I'm in agreement agreement with you on oil, and we've I've also been I mean we at CI have been short oil for about I guess two months now tactically, but I'm a little surprised to hear you say that because in in your piece you also talked about um, the natural gas crisis um, which we got from our friends Gildenstern and Rosencrantz over at their their firm, um, and so t- tell me how to square your position on oil with with your position on natural gas and sort of expecting that maybe U.S. natural gas consumption. I don't want to use the word peaked, but that it doesn't look like the United States can produce enough natural gas to keep U.S. energy prices low and then also foot the bill for Europe and keep Europe um, warm in the winter. So that's more of a longer term view. I would say I'm long term bullish in oil as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, like yeah. if you're running a pension fund right now, what I'm telling you know people who are long term investors is like, hey, use the next six months of commodity weakness to find commodity managers before they hike up your fees. To like 440 and stuff like that so mm-hmm. that's you know like a, a natural gas story is more um yeah what i think is interesting uh let's say that natural gas production in the u.s is not peak whatever what do i know um but i do think that if europe now starts building all these lng terminals you know it kind of globalizes the natural gas market from the u.s in other words a u.s market goes from being like very you know locked up in the u.s to being international and then that that unit of gas is going to have to equalize with the global price of gas because it's not captive anymore just in the U.S. It's going to start floating. But wouldn't you say, I mean, in the same way that the Fed, no Fed official or no president is going to raise, like the bet that they're not going to raise interest rates too much because of the snapback, because of the populist concern. I mean, I can't think of a U.S. politician or a U.S. president 
who would not at that point just block energy exports mm. again. It seems so to me that we're great, just right on the yeah. path to that. Yeah, and I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree. I think that's a huge risk for so many things. Um, and it's a great question, Jacob. I'm so glad you bring that up because it's very valuable for people to think about. So, but that happens as you know, my investment view proves correct. Mm -hmm. In other words, like natural gas price in the U.S. has to start going up for you know politicians to realize what's going on. And then if the U.S. does impose an export ban, like can you imagine what happens if over the next two to three years the Europeans are like, okay, fine, okay, fine, Trump was right. We're morons. We'll build those import terminals. Like here we go. Like, and they and they build it. They build them all over to Europe, and then the U.S. is like, psych. <laughs> like, no more exports. I think we're going to do it. I, like it. It took yeah. from. I was looking back at the '70s, and Texas oil production peaked around 1972. That was when the Texas Railroad Commission said no more restrictions pump everything 100% capacity as much as we can because we need as much oil as possible. And the next year, obviously, was the Yom Kippur War and all of the Saudi-U.S. stuff and petrodollars and yada, yada, yada. The United States did not block oil exports until 75. It took them three years to figure out we've peaked, we need a law, we need a whole structure for how to do this. So I would think because it's technically on the books and we've done it before, maybe they could do a little bit quicker. But to your point, like once the prices start going up or once people wake up to the fact that maybe production is peaking two years, three years before you get the the blockages in. And then I think you're right. Like I would tell any European listener or policymaker or investor listening to this podcast, like assume the U.S. is going to yank the rug out from underneath you in two to three years, if not sooner. I mean, that seems like it's pretty clear, clearly going to happen to me at this point. If, if the guys are right about natural gas production. And that's that's a you know that's a harsh view you've got, and I mean it is what it is. Uh, it fits into your thesis that the world is multipolar; it's every country for itself. That's been my thesis too, and uh, you know that's just another kind of like a log to throw on that fire uh, of how the transatlantic kumbaya after Ukraine is is both vacuous and temporary. Yeah, I, do you think it like? Because one of the interesting things thinking about natural gas, and it was your your piece that actually had me start thinking about it, because it's kind of ironic that natural gas and because of LNG is globalizing right now, because it feels like it's globalizing right at the moment that we're not doing globalization anymore. It seems like really bad timing. Is there any scenario in which natural gas like pumps through and says like, no, like we need more globalization. Like there's not enough natural gas. We're all going to, it's not going to be hold our hands in kumbaya, but like, do you think it could be a, a way to push back against the globalization recession or, or just no? Well, look, I mean, commodities remain quite globalized, you know, uh, those that are, you know, freely floated on barges and ships. Um, there's, there's certain markets like the Russia Europe natural gas relationship, which we should probably talk about because it's really critical at, mm. at the moment, but that is not globalized. Russia delivers its natural gas via pipelines and they don't have an alternative to European demand. Not zero. They cannot pivot. Um, so I think commodities generally have remained globalized. And I think that, um, you know, globalization is not ending or even reversing. It's It hit its apex. That's, that's kind of how I've been describing it for the past eight years that I've been, like, giving this thesis. And, you know, if you look at actual trade between U.S. and China or between U.S. and Europe, there is no actual sign of deglobalization and even sign of French shoring 
or onshoring is very, very, very poor. Um, so there's anecdotals, you know, there's plans, there's certainly contingencies, corporates are moving away from China, they're trying to diversify their supply chain. But uh, we have to be careful uh, to just like understand that what we had in the 70s is not coming back. You know, we're not coming back to that world. Um, and so nonetheless, it's, it's inflationary because marginally you're having less globalization every year, but it's not like just one or zero. And I hear a lot of investors who are, you know, uh, grappling with these geopolitical terms. Like they, they didn't go to school for them. They didn't study them. They're not interested in them. They're just trying to do their, you know, valuations and like technicals. And then suddenly they have to incorporate this. They're like, okay, it's a one or a zero. It's not. It's not. And that's why we're not going to have the kind of inflationary outcomes in this decade that we did have in the 70s. Um, hmm. you were just, I, I don't see that. I don't see double digit inflation. Um, and that's why I'm at relatively like bullish and optimistic, because if we have inflation of three to five percent for a couple of years, like what's the big deal? That's great. That's exactly the type of inflation we had, like in the late 40s, early 50s that allowed us to like, you know, inflate away to debt and so on. And it, it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the Europe energy prices thing. We should probably just dive in there a bit, too. I mean, yeah. it's, it has been a clusterfuck in Europe this week. I mean, it's. Italy's government is hanging by a thread. Germany's got the first trade deficit in 30 years. Uh, mm. Boris Johnson gone, the euro and the dollar hitting parity. Um, I mean, pick any one of those or anything else you, you want to go to attack what's going on. No, in let's do that. That's so that's that, that's key, man. I think right now the, the macro story that's the most interesting is parity of the euro. And I would push against that. You know, like, I mean, it's it's a bold call and dollar, dollar as a currency is a momentum currency. So it's very dangerous to go against U.S. dollar momentum. But um, the thing with the euro is during the euro area crisis, when literally the existence of the asset was under question, <laughs> you know, I used to, <laughs> I used to have this one gauge of like probability of euro area into solution. It was a spread between boons and BTPs. I forgot how I did it. But anyways, I did it. Whatever. It's mostly bullshit. But it was like a 35 percent at the height, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I, I made my career by betting against that. But like the thing is, at one point, the median investor thought that there was like one in three, one in four chance of Europe, the uh, euro area dissolving. Now, they're all going to lie. And they said they never thought that, but they did. And my point is, euro never hit parity. So now there's so much bearishness because people are extrapolating linearly uh, the Russian moves in the natural gas markets. And that's a problem. That's a problem because the Russians are, you know, and God bless the Russians. It's their prerogative. To, to try to play brinkmanship with Europe. You know, obviously they were gonna cut off some natural gas flows to Europe. They're trying, you know, they're they're basically trying to play a game of chicken with Europeans. And they're trying to get the Europeans to swerve. And you know, like Italian government collapsing or you know Macron not winning the National Assembly elections, they're saying like, well, look, we are having some wins here. But here's the reality. They, if they were serious, they would have cut off gas in April. And I say that because Europe is at half storage. So they have basically six months of storage. They're getting 61% of their natural gas outside of Russia. And so Russia needs to cut off all gas the moment the maintenance, the scheduled maintenance of Nord Stream ends in July. So in other words, if they come back in August, in other words, this is a two-week thing. We're going to know in two weeks if Russians are serious or not. If that gas starts floating again, Russians are screwed. Europe, Europe will have enough gas for most of the winter. Maybe in February it becomes an issue. But mm -hmm. this is an important point. Russians had a chance to be much tougher. They could have cut off gas in February, March, and April. 
in earlier in June, and they could have cut all of the gas, all of it. They didn't do that. And they selected countries that nobody cares about. Finland, you know, they cut off gas to Finland. Finland doesn't use natural gas. You know, the media reports like, oh, Finland imports 90% of its natural gas. It's irrelevant because Finland uses less than 10% of energy derived from natural gas. Bulgaria, who cares about Bulgaria? And then you had <laughs> Poland. They cut off gas uh, to Poland, which is par for the course. You know, they're angry at Polish support for Ukraine. But on top of that, Poland is at 100 percent of its reserves filled. Poland had all this. They're, they're, they got the next 12 months. Yeah. The Netherlands is the one that I would say the Russians were kind of more serious about. But anyways, the big picture here that I think a lot of investors are missing, and I'm talking about this, I, I'm not talking just out of like, like I can point to it, you know, uh, an instrument, natural gas futures, December 2022 in Europe, they're up 100 percent in like three weeks. And what what I want to emphasize is I think investors are missing the obvious, and that's that Europe imports, in terms of primary energy use, 10% of it is derived from Russian natural gas, which is a lot. One in 10 pieces of energy, units of energy, comes from Russian natural gas. But European demand accounts for 75% of Russian demand, and they don't have an alternative to that. You cannot swing pipelines to China. They're nailed to the ground. So here's the truth. Now, I can already hear the audience of this podcast going, but Marco, Europeans are screwed. What are they going to do? It's an industrialized Western, you know, OECD economy. They're going to figure it out. It'll be painful. Don't get me wrong. I get it. Recession risk, severe recession. But you know what? Germans will do what the Japanese did today. Restart nuclear power plants. Prolong their shelf life. They'll burn more coal. Yeah, they're burning coal. They'll more LNG. They are burning coal. They're going to do stuff. They're going to use plug-in space heaters and blankets. You know, the point is Europe has alternatives. And within 12 to 18 months, Europe will find them. Russia won't find an alternative for three quarters of their final demand for a decade. Because to swing pipelines around to China from the Yamal Peninsula in the European Arctic, it will take half a trillion dollars. At least. Ten years. It'll be the largest infrastructure project humans have ever endeavored to accomplish since the Panama Canal. Like, this is enormity, you know, and, and they're just not going to get it done. And so that's why I think that Russians are bluffing. Now, look, I thought Putin was bluffing, you know, in February, too. Thought it was 50% chance of war. Thought it was going to be limited to Donbass. It ended up being limited to Donbass. But, you know, like... They, it's limited to Donbass because they got their asses kicked. Their asses kicked. And, and, you know, listen, that's why I thought they didn't want to do it because, you know, I, like I saw that coming. That's not a surprise. But to me, the, the big issue is like, could could they be stupid again? Could the Russians be that dumb again? And I can't emphasize how dumb they are. Now, in America, especially in America, because there's this like deep like antagonism towards Europe, which is hilarious. But there's like this view that Europeans are screwed. And it's like Russians are more screwed. Right, they have no alternative to European customers. You're going to screw off their three quarters of their entire customer base if they accomplish that. So what I think is happening, instead of a one or a zero, again, it's not a one or a zero. It's not Europe wins or Russia wins. What I think is happening is that Russia is just saying, like, look, man, like we withdrew from Kiev. We're fighting in Europe's West Virginia, Donbas. <laughs> you guys don't care about this. Like, you don't. You don't. And we can mess with your energy crisis. We can cause, you know, populists to come to power in Italy. Like, why don't we just cool it? You guys can keep supporting Ukraine rhetorically with some stupid weapons. But really, let's just, like, cool off the tensions and get back to some stasis. And I think Europeans take that deal. 
Hmm. I, I do think they take the deal because they don't care about numbers. They care about sovereignty of Ukraine. I think the average European will even incur a recession for the sake of sovereignty of Ukraine. But for the sake of Ukraine, keep holding on to Donbass? No. But the market is not pricing that. The market is pricing the apocalyptic scenario. And I can tell that through the 100% move in the natural gas market over the last three weeks and Europe parity. So what I want to do is I want to short that that's December 2022 contract. And I want to nibble at the euro. Now, I think it's dangerous. Again, dollars and momentum currency in the near term, next couple of weeks, probably not the time to do it. But I think closer to September, October, when you see those flows go back through Nord Stream, if they do, I think the euro is going to have a spectacular uh, appreciation. And here's another reason that's going to happen. Energy matters much more to European inflation than the U.S. U.S. is pursuing populist left-leaning policies, not because of Biden, both, both administrations. So inflation is more entrenched in, in the U.S., much more entrenched. It's not just about energy. It's multi-factored, like multivariate inflation. So what happens when energy costs come down it's going to matter more for European inflation. European inflation will come down more relative to American. But the Fed and the ECB will both get less hawkish at the same time. And that means that in terms of real rates, the differential is going to favor the euro. And that's another reason to expect the euro to bounce off of these lows by the end of the year. Yeah, because, I mean, one of the, th and we were talking about this on, on the last podcast too. I mean, one of the issues right now is that the Fed is hiking and the ECB, I mean, they've talked a good game, but they're, they haven't hiked at all, really. I mean, they, it's all still future kind of stuff, I guess, because they've been afraid of the, the energy crisis thing. But uh, as long as the Fed is fronting this way, I guess it is hard to sort of get in front of the dollar freight train, like you said. Well, yeah. And uh, and eventually, as the Fed like backs off and says, hey, pats itself on the back, says we did it. CPI is coming down. At that point, I think that reverses. One other thing that explains the euro weakness and a lot of clients that I talk to, you know, they say, okay, fine, 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 fine. You know, like short term, maybe you're right. But long term, Marco Europe is screwed. Okay. Higher energy costs are priced in. Because even if the Russians come back, the Europeans are going to start building LNG, importing LNG, more expensive, blah, blah, blah. So Europe is just permanently screwed. And this goes back to long term forecasting. You know, and this is something that you and I have done in Korea for a very long time. And like, it always reminds me of that Blade Runner movie. You know, I love Blade Runner. It was made in 1982, year of my birth. It's about L.A., love L.A., love Harrison Ford, love film noir, love everything about it. But that movie is a great example of linear forecasting. Basically, you got a projection in 1982 of what L.A. looks like in 2019. And it looks like Tokyo, right? And it's got, like, Japanese people running around eating udon. And, and it's, like, so stupid in retrospect. They're so idiotic in retrospect that that was the like view in 1982, but it's, that's what happens when you forecast linearly based on like GDP growth rates. And I think what's happening right now is that a lot of like futurologists, whatever you want to call them, long-term are just saying like, look, America's got two oceans, got Mississippi River Delta. It's got cheap gas, cheap coal. Fuck yeah. You know, like Europe is screwed. But it's, almost never the case that the political entity that's enjoying like a cornucopia of like wealth retains that. That's not what leads to greatness. What leads to greatness are situations where you have to overcome 
a structural deficiency. Like the Industrial Revolution started in the British Isles for many reasons. One of them is they ran out of trees in Fan Kohl. And we're like, hey, what is this stuff? The Europeans were like, haha, have fun being muddy, you know? Like, and uh, your English were like, yeah, we're going to burn this stuff. It's good. Another example I often use with clients is Portugal. Portugal almost starved to death in the 1300s because of the Black Plague. And in the process of trying to feed their population that saw Portuguese interior completely depopulated, people moved to the to the to the shore to like feed themselves. The king created the first state-run fishing fleet that would go up to Greenland, get the cod, salt it, bring it back. And then hundred years later, Ottomans closed the Eastern Europe Mediterranean. People are scrambling for new alternate routes to Asia, and the Portuguese are like, well hell, we know how to do that. We'll do it. Hundred years after that, the Pope splits the planet between Spain and Portugal. Like, who would have thought that in 1350s? Like, yeah, those guys, like, the the Muslim invaders of Europe didn't even bother conquering Portugal, how, like, absolutely insignificant it was for, for like, thousands of years until suddenly their cod fishing, you know, expeditions ended up launching them into hegemony. So what I'm getting at is this. I think this moment right now is actually extremely positive for Europe if you're a long-term investor. If you're a long-term investor. First of all, Euro parity, duh, right? Obvious, like go take a European vacation at least if you can deal with the lost luggage. Get a carry on. So first of all, you have currency at parity. Second of all, you have a structural challenge, higher energy costs. That sucks. Innovate. Figure it out. Awesome. Third, we're in a world where we need more capex. We need to build more stuff to you know deal with China, to deal with climate change, all that stuff. Guess who knows how to build stuff? Europeans. Guess what Europeans don't know how to do? Software. Guess what we don't need in this decade? Software. Guess what just got crushed in for first quarter of 2022? Software. So that's the third issue. And the fourth issue that I think is critical is that Europe has had higher industrial costs for two decades. Look at the chart. Industrial costs of energy. America has had enormous advantage in cost of electricity for the last two decades. Has American trade deficit with Germany improved? Has American share of global exports improved? Has American manufacturing as percent of labor force improved? No. What does that tell you? That means that Germany for the past 20 years has been basically sprinting against the incredible headwind of high energy costs and still beating the crap out of the US. US had all this tailwind, all this wind at its back, and you know, head to head race, Germany has still won. And not because of some manipulated idiotic currency issue or like tariffs that Trump was talking about. No, because they're paranoid and because they are constantly getting higher productivity out of their labor force. And so, yeah, I think that this moment right now is actually the moment when Europe is going to absolutely crush the next decade. I, I couldn't agree more with you there, so I won't, uh, but yes. And I, but I think you, I think you and I are, I think we're the only two people with real estate on, on European union Island right now. I mean, it, it feels very lonely out there looking for anybody who doesn't look at me like I'm like, you know, like drooling. And well, in the US, yeah. But listen, I will say that that real estate has been there for a long time. So that's another thing. Look, America has absolutely kicked everyone's butt last decade asset performance wise. Um, and there's a reason for that. We're in a disinflationary decade. This inflationary decade that favored the stuff that America's really, really good at, and that's tech. But tech is 29% of the SP 500. You know, and tech is going to suck next decade. Like, I do not want to own software companies. 
over the next decade. Yeah. Um, before we bounce to some, to some other stuff, the last thing that I wanted to talk about in your piece was um, you said that you're bearish on China and that you're not expecting significant stimulus imminently for several reasons. Um, and I want to push back against that because it feels to me like China is already unloading the stimulus. It seems to me that the Chinese Communist Party for a long time, it's sort of stuck between stability and prosperity. And it, it started the deleveraging and taking back the stimulus because they were trying to get to a more sustainable level of prosperity going forward. But then COVID came and slapped them upside the face. And it happened at the, at the exact wrong time. And it like flies in the face of everything they've done very successfully over the last two years. But now you've got this situation where it's like 600 million only children are going to watch their parents who apparently don't want the COVID-19 vaccine. Apparently China is this great authoritarian propaganda machine, but they can't get the shitty COVID-19 vaccine they have into arms in China for some reason. But so we're going to have 500 million only children watch all of their parents die of COVID. I'm pretty sure she is like, uh, I, I think we'll go stimulus and we'll lock down cities so that we don't have to go to this scenario. Th that's the theory I'm working off of, but I wonder if, if you're seeing it different. Well, okay. I'm seeing it a little bit different, but let's say you're right. That's still two steps forward, one and a half back, because you're like, you know, keeping demand suppressed through zero COVID policy while stimulating. Um, so if you're right, that's still kind of tepid to me. The reason that I'm maybe more bearish than even that is that um, I think that zero COVID policy is a, is a red herring. And I think that too many investors are overly focused on it. I think it's, um, in other words, I don't, I, I'm, you know, a lot of commodity bulls, for example, really, really anchor on zero COVID because once it ends, boom, here it comes, yeah. you know, YOLO. And it's like, well, no, I mean, if you look at the import volumes of oil from China, like that chart looks to me like we're at 40 to 45 million tons of like imports since 2018, you know, like it's flat. So what I'm worried about is that private sector is over leveraged. No amount of interest rate cuts is going to get them to buy more condos. And the infrastructure investment that they have announced over the past couple of weeks is insufficient in quantity to overcome the debt, the end of the debt super cycle in China. So Chinese public, uh, Chinese private sector is where we were in 2009, 2010. And while they don't necessarily have the Tea Party, you know, what happened last cycle in the U.S. is basically private sector was deleveraging, but the public sector didn't leverage to counterbalance it. So in China, I think the problem is that, you know, they don't necessarily have the Tea Party wanting austerity, but they're not doing enough. And so I will change my mind maybe after November if they break glass and pull the kind of full on infrastructure, you know, like more like like 2010, 2011 level, level, 11 level of fixed asset investment, which most people don't think will happen. And so that's why I have a, you know, like kind of a. You know, it's not a bearish view of China. I don't think that China collapses. I think just China's, you know, got tepid prospects for for a recovery. No, I, I don't want to be too strident, or maybe I do. Anybody who's still peddling the China is going to collapse thesis, I, I'm pretty much writing you off at this point. Like, I, I don't, like, they're not going to collapse. Like, a lot of bad things could happen in China right now, but, like, it feels like every, like, the, the Three Gorges Dam is going to break and fall apart. COVID is going to kill them. Like, like n none of it's happening. Like, they 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 take every curveball and they hit it back and they, they muddle through. Maybe it's not going to be great, but, like, they're doing fine. And still there are people out here who are, who are ringing that drum. It's, I don't get it. 
Well, watch out because at some point, even a broken clock is right. So, like, you know, I know, like, I know. I'm, I'm <laughs> setting myself up. Ah, yeah, like 30 years they've been wrong. Uh, look, I think that China is just at the end of the debt super cycle. They're in 2009, like, they're facing yeah. 10 years of deleveraging. And so that's kind of the that's the conundrum I think they're in. You know, I don't know how they overcome that. Yeah. And I mean, the, I don't know. They're, they're, all, they're also, inc- I don't know. I, I see them as incredibly weak. And it seems to me that there's a better way to deal with them right now than to piss them off and, and make them all insular and, and go all in geopolitically with them. But they're probably going to do that anyway. I'm probably being naive by thinking that there's some other way to, to deal with them in the long term. Well, you know, I think um, we know what happens when um, a president loses control of Congress. I mean, they have to uh, go abroad to be relevant. And so I, I do think that next year, the Biden administration will probably be very hawkish of China. And I think that that's like the only thing they have left, um, you know, because um, there's really nothing else domestically they can pass once Congress goes Republican. Yeah. Uh, I don't see Biden pulling a Clinton where he works with the Republicans, not in this environment. And so I think that, you know, we should expect more fireworks in the U.S.-China. And then because China is facing this growth slowdown, how does that sort of an aggressive U.S. foreign policy, a Machiavellian U.S. foreign policy, how do they react to that? We know how Russia's reacted to it. They lost their cool, and they basically committed the Iraq strategic mistake U.S. committed in 2000s, except X-10, because Ukraine is so much more challenging than Iraq, especially for a country whose economy is like 18 times smaller than the U.S. <laughs> Russian Russian economy is smaller than the state of Texas, and they decided to bite a much bigger, like you know, like chunk that the U.S. did with Iraq. So, will China do the same thing uh, with Taiwan? If the Biden administration does try to act tough ahead of the 2024 election to kind of, you know, deal with the accusation that they're doves in China, like what does China do? Do they lose their cool, or do they not lose their cool? And I think the, I think they don't lose their cool, um, because I, I think they're they are better at strategy than the Russians are, and so I don't think that China will try to export you know domestic economic crisis through some sort of a military reunification with Taiwan. But I can see why people disagree with me, and I can see why they are projecting what Russia did in Ukraine um, to the Pacific. Yeah. Speaking of Biden, uh, I, I can't remember when he gets to Saudi Arabia, but he's going to Saudi Arabia to eat crow and, and hang out with uh, with Mohammed bin Salman. Um, I'll just tee that one up for you. What do you have to say? I mean, that? the easiest forecast I think I've ever made in my life, um, like at the beginning of this, you know, like it is what it is. And by the way, great sign of multipolarity, too. I mean, it's not like there weren't moments during the Cold War where countries like Saudi Arabia had the upper upper hand, obviously, Yom Kippur War, 1973, OPEC embargo. But I think that it's a great example of why, um, you know, like normative foreign policy does work. You know, it just doesn't. Um, George Cannon wrote about this, this kind of like a liberal, idealistic foreign policy is just, you know, there's really no place for it in in the world. It's it's unsafe. It's, it's unnormative. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, it's uh, it's bad for the long-term prosperity of any country, really. And that's that's kind of how Democrats saw Saudi Arabia. And in many ways, that's how Republicans saw Saudi Arabia, too. Both sides were normative and ideological about the Middle East. Um, and, you know, the U.S. has to correct that now. The question to me is two things. One, I can't answer, but I don't have any certainty on it. And a lot of people on financial Twitter 
seem to know what Saudi Arabian spare capacity is. They're all, <laughs> they're all oil bulls, you know? Yeah, apparently. Uh, yeah, which is funny to me. Everyone on financial Twitter thinks a recession is coming and oil is going to 160 bucks. And I'm like, uh, one of those two things is wrong. You know, like, I mean, but anyways, um, so it will be interesting to see what Saudi Arabia can offer. And second, of course, is what is what is it they're going to want? You know, are they going to want lots of draft picks? Are they, they going to want some, some contract? You know, what do they want for their Kevin Durant? You know, which is we're going to pop more oil if they have it. If they have it, what are they going to get? What do you think they want? They, they, they mean, already got they already got the Iran they got the Iran nuclear deal falling apart, so they don't even have to ask for that. That would probably be the first like that's probably two un, unprotected firsts right there. But so they already have it. So like what I don't know what else, like they want F thirty fives like. So I think that uh, there's some things about Yemen. There's some things about military for sure, um, but the big one is Iran. You know, and your point that they already got the deal falling through. I mean, that, that's the, that's dangerous, right? Because, I mean, this is a very complicated situation for the United States. Um, are you threatening supply by trying to get Saudi Arabia to bring supply on the market? That's the big question here, you know? Saudi Arabia can bring on the market X amount of supply. Well, that better be more than what Iran can take off the market. It's certainly not. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to throw shade at the people who know Saudi Arabia spare capacity and then make comments about Saudi Arabia spare capacity. But it seems to me it, it would it would be safe to assume that Saudi Arabia's spare capacity is less than Iran's pu- total pumping capacity. I think well, I'm no, comfortable no. making that statement. I, I know yeah, that's not what it, you were saying, but I'm. Yeah. The, the question is, how much can Iran take off the market? And I don't mean their own capacity. And you're I, talking I, about they're not. They're not. Listen, they're not going to like. Close the Straits of Hormuz, but could they? Like I've always said, I mean, there's a Basra, I think, pipeline. There's a terminal in Basra that pumps like 1.2 million barrels. Why can't that be sabotaged? As an example, I hope I'm not giving uh, ideas to anyone <laughs> Tehran, but uh, you know, I'm sure they they love Cousin Jacob's podcast. Oh yeah, uh, we we are top top rated political podcast in Iran <laughs> two years ago. But you know that that's like. That's relatively simple for Iran to do. I mean, Iraq is is a very critical producer of, of oil, obviously. Um, and could you could you through sabotage lose five hundred to a million barrels out of Iraq? And I think the answer is probably yes. We know the Russians are trying to do something similar in Libya. Yeah, and, and succeed, so they're they're succeeding in Libya. And they're succeeding, yeah. So I think this is where the question is like. The U.S. better not send those draft picks for Paul George with an injured stroller. <laughs> that was a good. That was a good analogy. Everyone who doesn't like basketball, which is probably eighty percent of people here, just don't know what I'm saying. I mean, like it's a you know, like you better not, you better not make a deal. And then Saudi Arabia shows up and says like, "Oh, we got your back, man. Here's three hundred thousand barrels." And it's like, what? You know, like, and that's what it did earlier. You know, well, like that's all they offer. I mean, it's it's not. It wouldn't be enough for the U.S. and, and for the global supply. I mean, that would be disappointing. But I'm not sure to what extent this is really critical to oil prices right now. I mean, oil prices are reacting right now to demand. And this is what's interesting to me about, you know, um, the kind of bullish oil story in, in on the tactical level. It's based on supply. It's based on inventories. Look, everybody in their chocolate Labrador can count inventories. This is like easy. If it was about counting inventories, then there would be no like uncertainty in terms of forecasting oil prices. The art in commodity forecasting is the demand. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, supply, supply, you just got to be connected. You got to like know where to look and blah, blah, blah. But like demand is tough. And the reason I turned bearish in oil and commodities in general was the demand side, whether it's U.S. recession risks and growth problems or whether it was mainly China, in my view. On top of that, you have the potential for the war in Ukraine to basically just be focused in Donbass. And at that point, I'm going to wonder whether the Europeans are even going to have the guts or the temerity to implement that embargo. You know, let's see what's the first thing that the Italian new government does. I mean, I would bet they're going to ask the commission for like a six-month delay. Hey, can we have a six-month pass on the embargo? You know, why not? Like, those are the kind of things that are going to start happening as the war in Ukraine is focused in Donbass. And, and as again, as the front pages of the newspapers in Europe, like, Ukraine goes from the first page because of shelling Kiev to page seven because the war is now somewhere where nobody cares. And then on first page is the energy cost. So when that happens, Europeans start kind of like being a little bit softer in Russia. Russia finds alternate, um, you know, demand somewhere else, India, China. The point of all of this is that I think there's more downside risk to oil prices, even if the Saudi, Iran, U.S. negotiations don't really produce anything in terms of more supply. Yeah, I'm. I'm still, I'm still befuddled by what exactly Saudi Arabia can, because like Saudi Arabia, they're doing great. They're getting everything they want. Like the the Iran deal fell through right before COVID. Remember, it was a Saudi Arabia Russia price war where right. Saudi Arabia wanted to elbow Russia out of markets and just slashed all their prices because they wanted to screw Russia over. They get that without doing anything because nobody wants to buy Russian oil anymore. Um, they've got the middle, uh, the Asian countries like India and China lining up, even Japan, South Korea, cause they still need all those hydrocarbons. I mean, just, I wonder if it, I, I don't know, it, we, we don't like the, the great man theory of history, but some of it just feels like Mohammed bin Salman is happy to have Biden come and eat some crow. I think so. I think so. And you know, that's, that's your prerogative. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, I think, is is playing geopolitics really, really smartly. Yeah. And uh, there's there's a few countries out there that I think, you know, you have to tip your hats to them. Uh, India, obviously. Uh, Turkey, to some extent, as well. Uh, their domestic economic policy obviously doesn't make sense, but foreign policy is pretty good. And I think Latin American countries are generally doing a good job as well. And this, you know, this goes back to the point about multipolarity, Jake. You know, so um, if you are somebody who believes the world is bipolar, then you believe the countries have to make a choice. And you believe that if they don't, they're going to be punished, right? Promiscuity will be punished. And my view is, no, this is the world in which geopolitical promiscuity is the correct play. Now, not every country is going to be able to do it. You know, like if you are proximate and small, you're close to a giant country, you better not mess with it, you know. Um, But... For a lot of countries, making a definitive choice is going to is going to be a mistake. And I actually think we should invest and construct an investment filter based on this. So if you want to invest in emerging markets, you better be investing in emerging markets that understand that it's a multipolar environment and who are willing to play all sides against one another. It's not like a normatively nice thing to say, but you know it, it just is what it is. And and I was fascinated. I, I actually tweeted this. Uh, it was the interview uh, that the Indian foreign minister, um, that's not actually how you say foreign minister in India, I forgot what a state secretary or something like that. Yeah, some secretary. But he uh, was in Bratislava at, at an event, and the interviewer was basically harassing him, you know, like, 
you must make a choice. You must, you cannot sit on the fence. And he was like, I'm not sitting on the fence. I'm standing on India's national interests. And then when he was being pushed to choose the axis of China versus US, this wasn't even about oil imports, by the way, from Russia. This was about China. I mean, this is a country that had, you know, that that extraordinary like fist fight with Chinese soldiers just 18, what was it, 24 months ago? Yep. Right? Like, and he refused. He said, I reject the European notion, he really meant Western. I reject your Western notion that we have to pick sides or that we have to pick an axis. This is India, member of the Quad, by the way. If you're out there, you know, like salivating at the prospect of the Quad being relevant, like you should watch this interview because he's effectively saying like, no, we are our own poll. And that is the correct thing to do. I think India has probably played geopolitics better than anyone. You know, they cut their teeth with non-aligned movement. They know what they're doing. And I'm, I'm really impressed by that. Yeah, the, I mean, India is, is interesting. Although I think the, um, you know, poor went out for Shinzo Abe, who was recently assassinated. The quad was really his baby. 100%. Um, and he, 100%. and yes. the, the Japanese are, I mean, the Japanese are Western, but they're not Western. And if the they quad has, if, right. if, the, if the quad has any chance, it's Japan's approach to India, which is not going to be zero sum. It's going to be like, let's use you. Blah, blah, blah. No, no, listen, listen, listen. You're 100% right. In fact, the other term that I think is idiotic, and when I hear it, I literally get like a like a twitch, is Indo- <laughs> Indo-Pacific. Americans love to talk about the Indo-Pacific. Like Indo-Pacific. First of all, what the hell does that mean? It's like three quarters of the planet. Well, listeners, if, if you're wondering what that means, we did an interview with Rory McEl- uh, McElroy. I think that was his name. I'm sorry, Rory Metcalf. McElroy's the golfer. Roy Metcalf yeah. wrote a book called The Indo-Pacific, came on this podcast and talked I'm about really it. Lovely sorry, man. I'm Lovely really man. sorry. I'm sorry to shit on a, a previous guest, but let me tell you. He, At least you didn't forget his name. I literally forgot his name. Sorry. You should have titled his book literally <laughs> three quarters of the planet. No, I'm, not, I'm just saying, like, somebody who walks into my office and tells me Indo-Pacific is relevant, I'm like, bro, that's like saying three quarters of the planet is relevant first, which is stupid. Second is that that was a PR term invented by the Japanese when they were speaking to the Indians. And it was like, hey, you guys are relevant too. So the entire infrastructure of global geopolitics is basically a PR effort to bring New Delhi into a Western alliance with China. (laughs) And they just danced on the grave of that idea over the past two months. Just danced on it. Like, no, screw you guys. We're taking our uh, toys and we're going home. Now, by the way, from an investment perspective, just as caveat, I wouldn't buy Indian assets based on this thesis. I mean, yeah. the time to do that was probably two years ago. Um, nonetheless, I'm just saying from a geopolitical perspective, I think they're playing their cards right. And, you know, they didn't buy this like PR from Japan and the US. They're like, cool, thank you. We'll come to your quad meetings. We'll try the appetizers. We'll, you know, like, we'll, we'll eat the canapes. We'll shake hands. We'll take pictures. And then we're going to go home and buy Russian oil. Yeah, but but this is my point. Like the United States thinks that India's membership in the Quad, they think they're getting some quid pro quo and some anti-China, Indo-Pacific strategic framework. Like I think that's all in the U.S. mindset and probably in the Australian one too. I don't think that's how the Japanese think about it. I think okay. the Japanese are thinking about it in terms of, hey, 
you like have a lot of people and a lot of cheap labor. We're really old and like we need some help with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like we're not going to make this about China. Why don't we outsource like some Japanese manufacturing to you and we'll give you some clean energy stuff. And because even I mean, this is one of the other remarkable things about Shinzo Abe. And it's so strange to watch the media try and interpret something that it doesn't know anything about. Like Shinzo Abe, like the quad was his baby. He was talking about multipolarity before either one of us was. He was super, super early. He also in 2018 at the height of Trump's trade war went to Beijing and said, hey, she, why don't we bury the hatchet? And why don't you come to Tokyo in 2020? And why don't Japan and China have a new like era of friendship? And and then, you know, turns around and starts talking about Taiwan. Like he was like classic Japanese pragmatist, wants to have all things at all times. And I think maybe the quad has been swallowed by like U.S. ambitions and things like that. But I don't I don't think that's what Japan wanted out of it. I think they wanted some kind of more pragmatic middle ground. This is an economic initiative. And I think in some ways, like maybe the Chinese just stole it. Like you're talking about PR campaigns. That's all the Belt and Road Initiative is, too. So it's 100%. like we have, I agree with that. I yeah, agree with have, that. I'm saying. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I never I never heard that interpretation. Um, and I really appreciate that. That's I mean, I learned, you know, something you I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't see it that way. And I didn't know. But, uh, but yeah, the Belt and the Road, 100 percent. I mean, Belt and the Road. You know, to your point, has been like adopted by the American Hawks. Yeah. <laughs> How many? Oh, I mean, this. I we talked about this before, not to like you know belabor the point, but like you know, I'm I'm originally from Serbia, so that's my home country, and and I always I always find it funny when I read some EU Commission report or like a U.S. Embassy report saying like, oh, you know, those Serbs are taking a lot of debt from China, building infrastructure with it. Like that's a bad idea. We we warn you against doing that, and I'm like, what? It's the greatest idea ever. If I ran Serbia, I would have like bathed in Chinese debt. You yeah. know why? Because I just default on it and take the infrastructure. What are you going to do? Invade Serbia? Yeah, I'll make my, like, my, my quarterly plea to any Chinese officials or intelligence folks who are listening to this podcast. The state of Louisiana would love your infrastructure investment. You can contact me at my email address. It's in the intro. It's the podcast. best idea ever. No, it's yeah, the best idea ever. Because, like, first of all, China has no power projection. They, they don't have gun diplomacy. You know, there was a case in, I think, uh, 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 Namibia or Angola, somewhere in, 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 West, in, like, Southwest Africa, where they did this. And the country was like, whatever. Yo, like, psych? Like, we're not, like, thanks for the railroad, but we're going to default. And so, to me, there's this uh, real overemphasis on the Belt and Road as having geopolitical connotations. When I think you're absolutely right. China's reached the end of its debt super cycle. The private sector is deleveraging for the next decade and all this capacity they have to build infrastructure. They got to do something. Japan and Korea did the same thing in the 80s. Obviously, you know, their ambitions even back then were lower than Chinese. I understand there's obviously some geopolitical, they're not picking randomly the countries, but sometimes they kind of are. Um, And, you know, like, again, God bless the U.S. Hawks. They got to get the defense budget through. You know, I totally get it. That's cool. And God bless poor countries like Serbia or Hungary who are like, yeah, sure, come build our infrastructure just so we're clear. We're going to default and keep this shit if, you're, if, if, you know, if we need to. And China's like saying, like, whatever, man, we just need to employ some labor and get our contractors to get a deal. So if you want to, like, blow this through 10 years from now, fine. You know, we'll just print more money. Uh, that's a great segue to... Um 
well, a two-part question, because a country that did exactly this and apparently <coughs> is worse for the wear is Sri Lanka, which took as much Chinese debt as they could possibly get, have defaulted on it, and now we've got, like, you know, Sri Lankans chilling in the president's pool, which I'm kind of jealous. I wish I, it looks like a nice pool. It was a very was, nice pool. I was nice. shocked by how clean it was because it suggested that some poor guy showed up that morning and, like, cleaned the leaves and the foliage. Yeah. You know, like even though or like that, that man is a professional and I and I want his services. Um, <laughs> so, like, I, I noticed that. So, look, I, I'm not sure to what extent it's Chinese uh, debt fault that caused. I'm sure someone's writing an op-ed right now in The Wall Street Journal about it. Um, but, you know, like Sri Lanka's problem is the commodity super cycle and the dollar and the U.S. dollar strength, which is going to be the problem for a lot of foreign uh, for frontier markets that whose CPI basket is heavily weighted towards food and energy. Yeah. And I, I don't, and correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think if, I don't think Sri Lanka is that important. It's pretty like India does not have a large sphere of geo geopolitical influence. Sri Lanka's in it. Like nobody's like going to challenge Indian Sri Lanka. It's their, it's their mess to clean well, up. I, mean, Chinese, to, I guess Chinese were. Yeah. But like you said, they, they, they can't project, like there's nothing they can actually do. It's like a long-term bet. Well, on you know what Jacob? Will. Here's what I would say, though, Jacob, like if they, you know, here's a great test case. Show me the money. Easy fix. No, easy fix. China, like you want to have a power projection capability. You want to have an anchor in the Indian Ocean. Foot the bill. Right. And if they don't, don't tell me if you're an American hawk out there. Don't tell me, oh, it's expensive. They don't want to do it. No, 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 no. It's worth it. Let's go. If China truly has global geopolitical ambitions, this is an easy, easy, what, what, what's up? 20 billion solves the crisis. Let's go. So why haven't they done it, right? I think they're not as enamored with this like Belt and Road Initiative as <laughs> Americans are. Uh, but the other thing is like, how, how relevant is this? You know, like, I sell my research services for a very high price, right? Much higher than The Economist. So if something is in The Economist, if I agree with it, I just don't talk about it. <laughs> you know, like if you want to know the consequences of the food price crisis, then just read what's in the news. Now, I did write about this 12 months ago before Ukraine. And I'm on record saying that the rise of food prices in particular will be the greatest geopolitical risk in 2022. Uh, so we wrote about this in June of 2021 before Ukraine happened, before I thought that, you know, like Russians would try to take all of Ukraine. Um, so before it was clear that there would be like an upside risk because of that, food prices were already rising yeah, because no, of all sorts I, of disruptions, right? My, my first piece about it was, uh, I was, this is one of the only things I've been right about and early about. I mean, I was March, like March, 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, watch out, this is going to be bad. But we, which is why I wanted to ask, not necessarily about Sri Lanka, but like just before we got on the pod, I was like, just, you know, doing my weekly reading and stuff like that. And I saw Panama has protests and the Panama yeah, Canal well, union workers were thinking about supporting the protest. Yeah. I was actually there when it happened. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. I was actually there. Um, what was, I was in Panama in uh, mid-May for a Bloomberg event, a Latin mm -hmm. American Bloomberg event. Awesome, great country, go visit. Um, got nothing bad to say about Panama, but like I do remember that, you know, some of the local politicians who came to the event were, were talking about that. It was it was very challenging. I mean, that's, that's yeah, the cost. So that's, those are the countries that are gonna have problems, right? Um, the countries that are basically frontier markets, like barely emerging markets. Uh, the only country where investors, so yes, 
like I know a lot of people who watch you. Obviously, you have a big following. It's not just investors; it's people who are just interested in politics. So I don't want to be callous and always reduce everything to like, you know, making money. But this is obviously a big issue, and you could have a wave of protests like Arab Spring. Absolutely agree. But when you look at what countries have a high percent of their CPI basket in food, the only country that's really investable for large investors is India. Hmm. And so that's where I would like, so we just spend the first half of this praising India, they get a gold star for geopolitics, but I am worried about their politics. You know, so India has had protests over the last several years off and on because of the labor reforms, because of the structural reforms, land reforms. Modi has had to back off for some of these structural reforms. On top of that, there's been sectarian violence because of some of the policies like mm-hmm. national, nas- national nationality law and stuff like that right before the pandemic. And and yet India avoided the kind of Arab Spring or the Spring Revolutions. There was a little bit of protest in China. There was a little bit of stuff in, in, in the Arab world. India avoided that unless you consider like Modi's election as a form of a political revolt against mm-hmm. the incumbency, which is fair. I'm really worried about India. Indian central bank splits their CPI baskets into rural and urban, and the rural Indian CPI food as a percent of that CPI basket is actually the highest out of any country in the world. Like this is the place to really worry about. Uh, so, oops. sorry, I got excited and knocked over my mic. But yeah, uh, this is what I, this is something that no one's talking about. You know, no, like domestic political risk in India. Um, everyone's kind of thinking they're. This is going to repeat itself. Food prices go up. Arab Spring happens. Migration to Europe. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen the same way. I, I don't think it's going to be the same countries, and I don't think there's going to be a migration crisis to Europe because Europeans have like cut that. They've they've instituted ways to prevent that from happening again. So history is going to rhyme. It's not going to repeat itself. And so we need to be creative and think about what are the countries that avoided the Arab Spring and are vulnerable to it today. Yeah, I hadn't. I honestly hadn't thought about india that intense i was actually pakistan has been on my red list of oh yeah that's a good one too of course absolutely but um are there any others besides that are on you i mean like egypt i'm actually been surprised at how resilient egypt has been they seem to be weathering the storm um but anybody else that's on your list that you're worried about um i mean no not really i mean i'm not surprised by egypt you know again the reason these things don't happen again is because like People learn lessons from protesting, either that they're futile, you could argue that was the case in Egypt, or that they, um, you know, like there's negative externalities or consequences such as instability, which is also the case in Egypt. So I think that we need to look at countries that are kind of fresh. And and the the way you do that, I think in this particular case, is you look at where is food a large component of the CPI. So I'm just pulling up my map here. And then the second thing is you look at is, are they commodity importers or exporters? And what comes up is, you know, the countries that avoided these problems in the past, um, you know, India, Pakistan, to your point, lots of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria would be one that I would be worried about as well. Um, I mean, they're, and, they're a disaster. And then some in Southeast Asia, you know, like, uh, like places like Myanmar. Yeah, although I mean, Myanmar is not even really a. Con- I mean, I don't want to say it's not a country. I mean, they're they've got their civil war. Is I would I would assume Indonesia is okay. 
okay. Yeah, they are actually okay. If you look at the CPI, so food as percent of food weighting in Indonesia is 25%, yeah. which honestly is similar to Spain's. Yeah. The countries that we're talking about are, are over 40. So India's weighing is 45%, rural mm. India is 60. Wow. Uh, Nigeria is 49%. So this is food as percent of CPI basket. It's, it's a lot. Uh, Myanmar is 60% almost. Um, you know, like some countries where it's actually pretty elevated, it's like Uzbekistan is 42, mm-hmm. Kazakhstan is 35. You know, oh, Kazakhstan is a commodity exporter. And the way to look at this is if you're a commodity exporter, you can offset the higher food costs through exporting your other commodities, and then you create subsidies for it. Where, um, where, is, where is Mexico on that list? You know, it's, 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 it's elevated. It's at 25%. And, um, you know, in the U.S., it's 7.6. So just as an example, hmm. like, you know, if you're an advanced economy, like France is 14, Italy is 18, um, Mexico's double that. So it's not insignificant. In Latin America, you know, Brazil's 20 Peru is 25, uh, Bolivia is 27. So, you know, it's it's elevated. It's not insignificant. Panama is 22%. It's more than 7%. Yeah. Um, like Americans, you know, like consumer confidence is the lowest it's ever been or some stuff because, you know, we're miffed though. You know, we're just, we're soft. Like 7% of our CPI baskets going up because avocados cost more and we're miffed. <laughs> we'll be fine. We will be fine. But it's triple that in Mexico. The importance of food in, in one's basket is triple what it is in the U.S. And in India, it's like eight times more. Yeah. And in Mexico rural is, India, it's ten times more. And Mexico is not really a big commodity exporter either. I mean, yeah, it's going to be challenging for them to offset this. So you are right that, you know, Latin America is should be flashing yellow, I think, yeah. but not red. I think red is really South Asia, your point, Pakistan and India. Uh, and then I think Sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa and Middle East. Yes, I get it. But they went through this. They learned yeah. the lessons. I don't think you're going to see the kind of revolts you, you had before. I am worried about Sudan, Ethiopia. You know, you're talking about half of your basket comes from food. South Sudan is 70 percent. I mean, you know, places like Mali, 60, um, Niger is 47, Algeria is 43, um, Mauritania is 50. So, yeah. Lots of lots of places that for investors are irrelevant. Yeah. But I think geopolitically will obviously be relevant. And you know, if you have unrest in a commodity producer like Nigeria that is too big to offset it through increased oil prices because it just has too many people, then it does become macro relevant as well. Yeah. Um, before we chat basketball, anything else we didn't talk about you want to talk about? Um, no, we talked about the euro. We talked about oil prices, commodity prices. I think recession in the U.S. we didn't really talk about. You know, fundamentally, my view on why the Fed backs off is that I still think we're in a world where policymakers are not willing to incur the pain of a recession. So I'll believe that they've become vulcarized when they are comfortable being responsible for a recession. I wonder how old Joe Biden was in, when Volcker was, was doing his thing in the 80s. He must have been... 74 73 Joe <laughs> No, but he must have he must have watched. I wonder what his position positions were back then. Yeah, well listen, listen, this is the preferences versus constraints thing. Like God bless all these people. Like if they if they want to be heroes, first of all they're 
like the whole point of my piece is that Volker is a false hero. He he was just he was aided by the geopolitical and political context they don't have. Yeah. So that's the first thing. But second, if they want to be a hero, like they're gonna have to explain to the American public why unemployment has risen like three times, you know, like why why the good times are gone. And and this is where a lot of investors, you know, you'll be very careful on financial Twitter and when you talk to people with money. And which is which is what investing means, right? People who invest have money. People who have money are savers. People who are savers don't like inflation. Yeah. And I always and I and I I've been without money most of my life. And I come from a country that literally has no money because we nuke it every couple of decades through hyperinflation. So what I know about this is this. When you hear somebody start lecturing to you how difficult it is for a normal family to feed itself or pump gas, and therefore we need to jack up interest rates and cause a recession, you know, start wondering about their actual, like, how much do they really care about that average family? You know, when I hear this on Twitter, like, you try pumping $7 gallon gas in California, we need to have the Fed jack up interest rates. Well, I'll tell you how you will pump gas at $7 a gallon. I'll tell you how you'll do that. You'll use your credit card. You'll go into debt. You'll dip into your savings. But you know what's worse than dipping into your savings or using your credit card for $7 gallon gas? Not being able to pay for a $3 a gallon gas because you're out of a job. Yeah. And I think that that reality, this this like financial Twitter, fintwit hysteria about inflation, hashtag inflation, the moment it becomes hashtag recession, that's when you're going to see the whites in the eyes of policymakers. And that's when you're going to be like, okay, so you're willing to put Joe the plumber out on the street because savers don't like inflation and they don't want to like basically be pushed out to invest in various ways to compensate for it. That's, that's what's happened. And that's why I really don't buy the argument about Volcker because I think the median American is not a saver. The median American does not have much savings at all. Nope. And they are like, as long as those real wages don't decline too much, the average declines like 3% a year now because of this, they had enough stimulus to offset that, they got credit cards. As long as they're employed, as long as, you know, like inflation comes down from 9% to 5% to 4%, I think the median American will be more than happy with 5% inflation if that means they're employed. And so yeah. if you're a saver, you better get ready for that because that's where we're headed. We're not headed for sub 2% so you can clip coupons and be happy about it. Yeah. I, uh, to your point, I was looking at, um, I was trying to figure out um, just how much of an effect the stimulus checks had on um, wealth inequality in the United States recently because wealth inequality is one of the things I'm always looking at. Um, and I was wondering if it actually affected things that much. And it did. Uh, the, the bottom 50% went from having 2.2% of wealth in the United States to 2.7% over one year. And they've already lost it all, to your point. So they're not savers. They put it on the credit card. They've been doing crypto. whatever they wanted to do. And they're back at their they crypto. They're back at their 2.2%. And I, I wonder if that, I wonder if the stimulus checks also are, are blunting politician sensitivity yeah. to the issue yes. because they think oh they just got all this money they've they've surely saved it and it's like nah they went and bought dogecoin and like like a go-kart and now they're out and like it's this is like not going to be good go -kart. well also <laughs> the other thing i think is uh 
Yeah, no, I mean, look, uh, there's also perception like people are not just take, they're not taking jobs, you know, they're sitting at home, they're playing computer games. I don't know about this. Look, all I know is that when the recession risk becomes imminent, it will dwarf the inflation risk. And I think politicians are smart enough and technocrats at the Fed to kind of offset that. And that's why I don't believe it. I still don't believe them. But listen, here's the good news if you are a saver and investor. Eventually, the median voter realizes that this is our short-term game. Eventually, you have voters vote for pain. This happens all the time. It happened in Argentina with uh, with Macri. Mm. It happened uh, during the uh, you know like during after the GFC, people voted for austerity. People voted for you know David Cameron telling them that he was going to implement structural reforms in the United Kingdom. Mariano Rajoy in Spain. People give mandates to politicians who promise you pain. They promise you self-flagellation. Uh, it's going to happen in Turkey, potentially, with AKP and Erdogan, like, yeah. falling in the polls, where the Anatolian conservative religious voter is like, you know what, bro? Inflation is at 80%. Screw you. I'm done. And my point about this is um, eventually that happens. But we need more pain and we need more suboptimal outcomes in the meantime before yeah. that happens. Um, basketball. What's going on, man? What's going on with the Lakers? I saw I saw Aiton. Uh, we're, we're putting this out on Monday. Aiton signed uh, the max offer sheet with the Pacers today, which uh, if we had Brian Windhorst here, maybe he would be telling us about how something's in motion with with Durant. I have no idea. But how are you feeling? I mean, you know, uh, look, I think, first of all, we're going to make a case why you could win with a trio of AD, Westbrook, and LeBron. I'm going to make oh, a case. Oh, God. Make it quick. <laughs> Here, I actually, I'll make it for you. There is no case. Next. <laughs> Go ahead. No, listen. There's no, two no, things. try. Try. That's fine. There's two things that I think the Lakers should should have done. Is one, they shouldn't have given up on Caruso and KCP and all sorts of wings. They had the complete defense. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was stupid. And you can go out and get some new wings who can play defense. It doesn't seem that we're doing that. So, like, that's great. Uh, the other thing is AD. It's AD. Like, if he plays like an MVP, Lakers are in the playoffs. And then once the Lakers are in the playoffs, who knows what happens. And, and, and like, that's, that's, that's the case. And because you're laughing at that case, the obvious, I think, uh, explanation here is that you trade AD. That's, that's obvious. And you trade him to the Nets. And I don't know what you get for them. Would the Nets take AD and give up K, uh, KD? Like, why not? Uh, yeah, they, they would probably do that. I was laughing because I, I was laughing because the idea of somebody coming to your office and talking about the Indo-Pacific is the same as if you came into my office and started talking about AD being the MVP. Like that's basically the same thing. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. I mean, you're you're in New Orleans. You lived through AD years, right? Uh, yeah. Although I mean, I was I was still a suffering Hawks fan back then. But that's I mean. Right. New, we're doing great in New Orleans. I, my yeah. greatest fear is that we're yeah. going to try and trade for Durant. I want no part of him, mm. man. Like, stay away. Like, give me. Let's roll it back with CJ and Zion and, and Ingram. Like, I, I think yeah. uh, New Orleans looking feisty. So I agree. Great young players. Awesome team. Um, you know I, what? I, I, even, I, I even went on on two. I, I went in on some season tickets. So next time you're in town, oh, come wow. on. Come on in. Oh, I would and love to. Because yeah. I live in New Orleans, it doesn't cost me like you know all of my yeah. my stimulus checks to do so as it would there in LA. So. <laughs> I mean, look, I think uh, I think what's interesting next year is also the Clippers. They got Wall. It'll be interesting to see what John yeah. Wall brings to the Clippers. 
they seem like the problem with the Clippers is they seem like an island of misfit toys. They just keep getting these guards, these like Reggie Jackson, like Wall. You know, they all seem to me like the same player. Um, so they've got a lot of one-on-one, you know, in the playoffs. I guess it matters, but I don't know how that will work. A lot of them are coming back supposedly healthy, so it'll be interesting to see if they compete. Um, and I think the West is definitely still wide open. Uh, the Mavericks, I'm very disappointed. Didn't do much, um, right? Like, I mean, what are they? What's the plan? I mean, I don't mind losing Brunson if I'm the Mavericks. I, I don't know how he fit with Luca. They're they're like this dueling banjo idea. Like, you take one turn, I take the other. Doesn't work. Uh, Luca needs to learn to get off the ball. Apparently, that's the plan for this year. Um, I don't know if you saw in the playoffs, but when they put him on the block, that like big Balkan butt, like just like dominated. He he, who was it? He 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 put Cam Johnson. Like, it was embarrassing, man. Like, that was just, like, when Cam Johnson was trying to guard him in the post, it was it was incredible. They need to get him off the ball. They need to give him somebody who can uh, be a point guard. Uh, surprised they didn't go for Dragic. That would have been obvious. Like, the two Slovenian players, like, <laughs> why you got to have them with the same team. And then Denver, you know, and my, 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 the guy who shares the homeland with me, Jokic, like, I mean, they didn't do much either, and they're putting a lot of, like, basically, um, you know, faith into Donovan, uh, into Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> Freudian slip. The other guy who's a Jamal, Jamal Murray. <laughs> yeah, and so that's that's the other issue. And then finally, like, the, the thing we can talk about is what is what is you to do? Um, they're clearly blowing it up. That's interesting. And then Minnesota, that's another story that I would love to have. I mean, Twin Towers, you know, where, like, it's just, I don't know. It's. I wanted to succeed because I've always played big. You know, I have the nostalgia for post play, but neither Gobert. I think I have better post play than both Gobert and. and I, I like Gobert. I just can't get in on this this thing of seven footer like like Carl Anthony Towns who can't rebound and can't play defense and who when the lights are bright like wilts like I, I don't know how because like we've seen twin towers work before like it was a different league back then but duncan robinson obviously but speaking of new orleans that half a season before demarcus cousins got hurt where ad and demarcus were mm. doing it like oh, yeah. they were great and they were great because they were both bad men down in the post and like they could do the outside stuff and they could do the inside stuff and they were ferocious and like demarcus was lazy but when he actually tried he could play defense Carl Anthony Towns, like, I'm pretty sure I could score baskets on Carl Anthony Towns. Cole Altum is going to listen to this and light himself on fire. He's probably not going to make it this far because I have a litany of NBA players I say I could score baskets on. But Carl Anthony Towns, like, he, like, I don't know. I just, I just can't get there. So that's interesting. Uh, when you said that AD was a beast down low in the post, like, so did he, he leave that part of no, his no, no. game he, in New Orleans? He, he can he can be. He doesn't want to be. He hates oh. being a center or whatever else. But like he has the requisite. No. Like you've seen him. Like I'm sure you've seen him post up once or twice, and it's no. amazing. And you're like, why no. don't you do that 50 times no. a game, bro? No, no, I've never seen him pull a post up move in, in, oh, in a, for a pulling goal. It's 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 terrible. <laughs> like his most memorable shot is the late is the last second three to win. Uh, you know, the game in the playoffs and, you know, awesome, got us a ring. I'm very proud of it. But like, my God, man, like learn some post moves. I think um, I think it's going to be interesting. You know, I think there's a lot of movement, which is fun. And um, and uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed by what the Denver Nuggets and the Mavericks did. I just feel like they're wasting yet another season 
of both Luka and Jokic. Jokic in particular, I think that just... Yeah, you know, it's... I agree with you on Dallas. Denver is harder to go at because, I mean, they're locked into Murray and they're locked into Porter. So, like, their best hope is that those guys come in. And, I mean, they signed Bruce Brown. I mean, they're they're trying to fill in things around the edge. We're really just going to see how good Jokic is. Like, can he be the best player on a team and take someone to the promised land? I, I think he can. I mean, if, if Murray comes back and is 75% of himself, that should be enough for them to, to go through. It's not like they're going to be, to your point, there's no heavy favorite here. I don't see anybody who's going to take, um, take the Nuggets well, out, especially with Celtics, AD playing the way he is. I think the, like the heavy favorite must be the Celtics, right? I mean, they are young. They've played together forever. They got a really cool signing with Brogdon. Um, yeah, I like him. Uh, he's awesome. If he's healthy, I think that's a great, um, you know, maybe they need another wing. Um, I think they cool. got, they got, who did they get? They got DiVincenzo, I think, or yeah, no? Yeah, no, yeah. No, uh, no, he went to Golden State, um, which Golden State's probably just going to win again. So I don't know about that, man. I mean, like, I don't want to bet against Golden State, but like, you know, um, it is so amazing that they did win this year. Uh, I really thought Celtics had it. Um, they just seemed more athletic, bigger, uh, younger, hungrier. Um, and then, you know, that didn't happen. So the other thing that I wonder is, like, how long can Draymond Green remain relevant? I mean, he looked pretty um, – they lost also they lost Gary Payton. They did. And I think that's a big, that's a big problem. He was really relevant for them. Really relevant. Yeah. So I'm excited. We Until do... Dur- no, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you, you go. No, I, I was going to say we should do, um, you know, Bill Simmons does the over-unders. At this point, no one's listening to this podcast, which, which is perfectly <laughs> fine. I'm perfectly okay with that. Uh, but I would love to have some over-unders here, you know, because we haven't done those, by the way, for geopolitics in a while. Uh, yeah, I'm, so we I'm should, sorry. I, I didn't we should do... Them. No, it's okay. We should, we should do it together. But, like, I think um, maybe we do some for this. Like, what are the most surprising... Once Vegas comes out with the uh, with the lines, let's do five over unders each right before the season. We don't have to do the whole eighty, uh, all all teams, all thirty, whatever teams, because we don't actually do basketball podcasting for a living. But let's do five each. Okay, and then and maybe we can do five on the the food uh, basket uh, list as well. The food actually. basket list as well. <laughs> over under likely to uh, implode. Basketball uh, and countries. Over, over under likely to have pictures of protesters in presidential swimming pool in in this country all right well um we've been bad about our monthly cadence but we'll have you back on and well wh- where are you going to be in a month you're going to australia in a month uh so yes next week i'm on the east coast and in australia next month also let's try squeezing a Jama- uh, uh, a vacation in between and also um a quick uh, trip to europe um with no checked in luggage so, and then um, September, October, November, and December, if you looked at my calendar, you would be like, so you're going to live in an airplane. So, look, uh, travel's back, and I like it. Um, seeing people in person is really awesome. And, um, you know, I look forward to seeing people around the world. Right, well, maybe next time we'll do this podcast in person. Um, well, and yeah, you're a standing invitation to come to Santa Monica. Uh, although, you know, well, it you sounds like you're not going to be there. It sounds like I I'm need to. I'm not going to be there. <laughs> 
<laughs> no. have to look at your calendar and figure out when we're in the same place at the same time. You have more. In- I'm, I'm going to Wisconsin again in three weeks and then Fargo and then uh, Great Falls, Montana. I'm like doing the agriculture circuit right now. So That is awesome. That is awesome. Like Montana is amazing. So yeah, I'll, I'll know I've really made it, though, when they invite me to Montana in summer, not on December 1st. So. No, wait a minute. December 1st, you can go to, what is it, Whitefish? That's a cool, right, for a ski. All so. right. I'll try it out. Um, but you're right. Nobody's probably listening now. So, Cousin Marco, we'll have you back as soon as we can, whenever you can. And we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you, Cousin Jacob. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.